Physics and biology, are they really that different? Or can the concepts from one discipline be not only necessary, but fundamental to answering questions in a different discipline? I'm Jackie Shea. I'm Jeff Lauder. Today on Radio Bio, Dr. Ocha Campas explores how the mechanical properties of individual cells can affect whole systems and uses magnetic liquid to dive into the microscopic world of cell physiology and the physics underlying biology. Don't know much biology. Please introduce yourself and tell us about what you study. Okay, so um, I'm Professor Uje Gampas. I, I'm in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at UCSB. And uh, we work to understand how different biological structures, like the organs, uh, are shaped during development. So how you get the right functional form and, and functional properties of these organs from a physical perspective. And how'd you end up researching this? Like, it's, what's kind of the path you took into the field you're in now? So, so I started as a as a pure theoretical physicist, like uh, pure in the sense of like doing only pen and paper calculations on actually um, high energy physics. So, so I decided that to, to move into biological physics because it's it's because there are a lot of open questions. We know a lot, but we understand very little. Mm-hmm. So there is the feel that you can actually contribute, really. You can actually solve questions that are important. So mm-hmm. this is why I decided to switch at grad school. And I was doing theoretical biophysics. And then uh, as a postdoc, um, I decided to keep doing theoretical biophysics in different topics, like in morphogenesis, how you shape uh, biological structures. And then I decided to start doing experiments as well and to, to combine both, to kind of have both flavor. So if I could wanted to do the theory, I could do that and also test the ideas in the lab, mm-hmm. not only just be a pure theorist. Yeah. For, uh, from a physics perspective, uh, there is one area in physics that is really not understood very well, and it's not what we call non-equilibrium physics. So systems that are out of equilibrium, not that are consuming energy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and biological systems are exactly like exactly. Exactly that, <laughs> and is a part. And on top of that, is a part of nature. Like physics, from the, comes from the Greek nature, right? And unfortunately, in physics, uh, we we have been very uh, focused on uh, on things that are non biological because biological systems are are complex, mm-hmm. and 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 <laughs> the other kind of matter that is not living is already complicated enough. So so then many physicists have been out of that. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you if you if you don't care about that, and you can go into the biology. It is, it is very interesting because it has a lot of new physics. The question, one question that you can ask is, I mean, like the, we are made of matter, right? Like, like anything else, what is the difference between living matter and inert matter? What, 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 in, what they are dif- in what they are different? Clearly, I mean, clearly you look different than the table, right? Mm-hmm. It's clearly different. Something has very special properties, but we don't know anything about it. Interesting. So that's one of the reasons why I went into this field. It's because it has a lot of problems that are very interesting for physics, not only for biology. Mm-hmm. And actually, I don't like this idea of well, it's a physics or a biology problem. It's a science question that is interesting. And you use either physics tools or biology tools or math tools or, to approach it. Mm-hmm. But the question is not a question of one field. Mm-hmm. It's not that in physics we own the question. Yeah. The biology <laughs> owns the question. It's a, it's a question in science, and you tackle it with different perspectives. 
this is philosophically very interesting, because if you do believe that there are no laws, then there is no reason to do science. Hmm. Because if there are no laws, what you're doing is collecting, is, is, is really what people say is a stamp collection. You're mm -hmm. just like collecting and classifying. Mm -hmm. So the, the laws is what allows you to make abstract cases that actually explain many different phenomena. Mm -hmm. I think it's really cool that you have this great approach to seeing things in an interdisciplinary way and, and combining physics with other fields. When did that sort of click for you? Where were you at in your life when you decided, I have to see things through all of these different lenses to really understand these abstract concepts? Hmm. I, don't, I don't think there was a single moment in my life that I th said, look, I need to do this, otherwise I'm not going to understand. It's just, I think it was more an, um, I, I mean, there are people that are interested in science, and probably all of us here actually are interested in science. <laughs> and, and the key point, in my opinion, is not to be, n not to fall into the stereotypes of scientific dis disciplines and say, oh, that is physics, that is very complicated, I'm not going to look into it. Or like, oh, that is biology, it's a mess, it's like, I'm not going to look into it. This, this is, for me, there is science. Science is questions that are interesting. And then the whether or not you're going to be able to contribute to the question depends on your background. There are some tools of some fields that are going to help you more than others for some questions. Just think of tracking a problem only from a molecular biology perspective. You may find the genes associated to something. Doesn't mean that that is how the system works. You know? So we know that actually, and there are several systems in biology that people have identified the right genes. We know them. We can make the list. And we still don't understand how the system works. So there is something missing and the missing is that you need to integrate the different parts mm -hmm. Definitely. So the, because the question is not about the field the question is not in a field it's a scientific question and it can be approached with different methods can be tackled with different methods so speaking of questions you have a i feel like you have a broad range of topics that you explore what are the major questions that drive you as a researcher so i have an allergy for questions that have been touched before. An allergy? Yeah, oh. kind of in the sense of like, I really dislike to go on topics that people have already discovered, things that are like very... Well known. Well known. And the reason is because I don't feel that then my contributions are, are so uh, unique. So you need to balance that. But I think I, I'm actually Feynman, you know Feynman, uh, the physicist. Nobel Prize in Physics, actually, he said something that was very interesting. He said, like, I like to work on these topics that he was working, it was quantum electrodynamics at that point. And he said, I like to work on this because there's nothing done and I don't have to read papers then. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, he was, he was very controversial as a figure. I think that's a good kind of segue into your research specifically. <laughs> so uh, a lot of your research focuses on kind of the mechanical properties of cells. Um, mechanics, so, yeah, yeah, of, so of biological structure. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what that means? What are the mechanical properties of cells and how do you test them? So, so obviously cells and tissues and organs and all these are physical objects. They, and therefore they have actually the mechanics like any other object in the world. It's just that um, they are living systems and, and we really don't know about how mechanics or the, the physics of the system, and we don't know them because simply we didn't have the tools to, to, to measure that, to, like we do in physics, like we want to test actually how, how the system behaves. And, and really for me, what was interesting in the, in the systems is, is really try to understand how these structures are shaped. And we know from physics that if you want to shape a structure, you need to control its mechanics. There's no way around. I mean, there are laws associated to that. 
and we know them. And we know them in general enough. The laws are so general. These are conservation laws in physics. It's the more general thing that you can go, really, uh, that apply to any material, whether it's living or non-living. So then um, by inspecting these laws, that gives you hints on what is it that the biological systems can, or can or cannot tune or modify or control. So, so, so then what I realized is that if you really wanted to understand morphogenesis, you needed to go and measure these physical quantities. So in my lab, what we decided to do, and it's been eight years developing these techniques to be able to, to get to the point that we are now. Oh. Uh, so to, we really went into saying, okay, we need to measure this in developing embryos while the structures are being formed. That is the goal. If we can do that, then we will be able to understand this part. And we just set out to, they didn't exist, this technique, so we just set out to, to develop them. That's so and, cool. And, 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 and you need actually to know chemistry to develop them. You need to know physics. You need to know biology. You need to know material science. Mm -hmm. So you go and you learn it. That's sort of like a weird question. But, you know, why is shape important? That's a good point, actually. There are many, many biological structures, like your kidneys or like your lungs or your eye depend totally on their shape to be functional. So, and in biology, nearly everything is about function. Mm. You, need, you need to perform the right function. So the reason why we're interested about this is because actually, unlike physical system, unlike, sorry, I should say inert physical system, <laughs> in inert physical systems, fun uh, function doesn't exist. It's not a concept. There's no function, there's no function to, to I don't know, to, uh, you look at the ripples of the sun, on the beach. There is a structure there. There is, there is actually, you, you see the ripples and there is a structure, but it has no function. It's not that it were put there actually for you to lay out on the beach. Mm -hmm. No, it just, just is. It just is. It is, it, what happens is that there is an instability actually in the system and you go from the flat sand to, uh, to an oscillation and it creates, a, and it's well understood in physics. It's well understood this. Or the, or the wave on the ocean. Mm -hmm. Also another instability is called the Kelvin Helmholtz instability. It's well understood. Serves no function to have <laughs> waves on the ocean. So, so in biology, function is the is key to understanding biology. It's really key, and actually that resembles more engineering. In engineering, the table has a function. So, but but it's, so it's a concept more that comes from that in engineering we're used to, but not in physics. Whereas, uh, and in biology is central. So, so there are two things. One is about the shapes what they may mean for development. And the other thing is about how these uh, properties, these physical properties, affect cell behavior, which is an entire, it's an entire field today, hmm. which is it's called mechanobiology. And actually it's like how mechanical input signals to the cell affect cell behavior. And this is huge because for a very long time, people have thought that cells react, read biochemical signals, a little bit like olfaction, right, for us, like they can sniff the like the chemical environment, but for a very long time, actually, people had totally ignore that they could have sense of touch. Mm. They could sense the mechanical environment and act on it, like read it and act on it. And it turns out that there's been a bunch of over the last decade, there's been a bunch of experiments, actually, particularly in lab set in, in dishes, not in embryos, actually, but uh, in dishes that that have shown. And we have a ton, a ton, there's a lot of data on that, that cells can read both the stresses, the properties, the mechanical properties of the environment that they are in. And what they do is they, they 
read them and they integrate them and they, they have some instruction from the genome actually that decide actually from this input that I'm getting what am I going to do and it changes the behavior that they have it can change how fast do they proliferate what cell type they become what kind of uh, what kind of cell they become it can change how they move it can change actually whether they do a function or another so at the end of the day and all these are key things for the function of the our organ so mechanics can strongly affect function through that only, through how the cells sense it and act and behave, actually. So there's, there's this feedback there's this the feedback. shape and the behavior. This is called mechanical shape. feedback in this, mm -hmm. in, this, in this setting. And then there's, so that's one effect of mechanics that is very important. And actually, it's, to be uh, fully honest, is like what most of biologists are interested in terms of mechanics is how they change the cell behavior. And this is because biology is very centered around the cell. Mm -hmm. Cells are the unit, right? But, but it's a totally different thing that if you look more at larger structures like organs, they have morphologies that are directly related to their function. Mm -hmm. The lungs is the reason why the lungs actually have this fractal geometry is because you need a ton of surface area to exchange gas actually with it. And that's why actually it has this structure. So you need to somehow build that structure and encode that structure, mm -hmm. but you need to actually build it. So you mentioned that you spent eight years developing this new method to test cellular mechanics, basically. So what's the method that you developed and how does it just walk us through how it works, essentially? Right, so so many people actually have developed methods to measure cellular mechanics. Many, many people. And actually, there is a wide variety of methods, but they are mostly, not to say the really vast majority, they are done for in, in vitro settings, meaning you put the cells on a dish. Mm -hmm. So you take the cell from the real tissue or the real embryo and you put them on a dish that is made of uh, and whatever actually, or a glass, mm -hmm. and you put the cells on the glass. And first of all, the cells are seeing an environment that is totally foreign. Mm -hmm. Like a cell is normally not filling a glass right. in the body. <laughs> it's very different mechanically. It's very different than your body tissues, structures, etc. Et so the first question is you, ha you have to ask is, do, do the cells change their behavior when you do experiments like that? Because you're changing a lot of their environment. But they actually, but many people actually develop techniques, and then they started realizing actually that mechanics was important using these techniques. Hmm. But the key for me is like, if you study morphogenesis, or if you study how shape, shape and structure are built in three dimensions, you cannot take the cells and put them on a dish, hmm. because if you do that, the structure is lost. So in order to shape something in 3D, you need to measure directly while that structure is being created in 3D. In its real in native its system. In its real native system. You cannot go. So. So well, when I started thinking about this problem, there were just no techniques to that, zero. So we could not um, access that information. And from a physical perspective, we knew actually it was critical to have that information if we wanted to really understand how it worked. So we said, okay, so let's develop something <laughs> to do that. And that's uh, easier said than done. I mean, there's a reason why people had not done it, even if they had thought for it, about it actually for a long time. So it just turns out actually by pure chance, when I was a grad student, I was working, I was doing pure theory only on a system that we were, we were trying to understand what were the forces that actin generates during polymerization. Okay, like actin polymerization on surfaces, like when, actin, when cells move actually, they polymerize actin filaments. They make these networks. And we want to know what were the forces that were generating. What's when, causing these What's causing. Like look how the cells assemble this networks that push on mm -hmm. the substrate and are able to, and they allow them to move, right? Mm -hmm. So a lab in the Curie Institute where I was doing actually the, the PhD, uh, they, they said, okay, let's use 
so they were studying actually the propulsion mechanism of a bacterium. It's called Listeria, that you probably have heard related mm -hmm. to infections uh, <laughs> that are quite complex actually mm -hmm. and, and, and annoying. <laughs> associated to eating brie, <laughs> unpasteurized brie, or things like this. So, um, so uh, we were so actually these bacteria do something that's super interesting. They uh, they hi they hijack all the machinery from your cells. They get into a cell, and they only have one single protein. It's called acte. Doesn't matter, but it's on the surface this, of this bacterium. And and then this 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 protein actually just triggers excites, if you want, all the machinery from the cell to assemble actin, and it starts assembling, growing actin, a network of actin around, actually, the bacteria. And at some point, this network actin gets, gets, starts, um, grows on the back of the bacterium, and it propels it like a comet. Mm. It's absolutely insane to see. Because the bacterium <laughs> is using zero energy from itself. It's using the energy from the cell, the ATP from the cell, is using the monomers of acting from the cell, using all the machinery from the cell to propel itself in the cell and kill it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's like, if you think about like good mechanisms of like destruction, this is like really impressive. <laughs> but, but actually, so what we said is like, if this is the mechanism, how it works uh, in terms of propulsion, you mm -hmm. create a comet tail of acting that propels you forward. Well, you could take off the bacterium and do that with an inert object. If, as long as you coat it with this protein that the bacterium has. So, so in this lab, actually, what they did is they substituted the bacterium for um, a rigid bead, like a polystyrene bead, huh. coated with this, put it in extract, cell extract, so it has all the goodies, let's say, and all the proteins that are necessary. And actually, it grew a cloud of actin, and then it, it breaks the symmetry, and it starts propelling like with a comet, <laughs> so like the bacterium. Exactly the same. Yeah. It behaves the same, and it's just a, just a bit. It has, it's, it's in air, right? The thing is not a bacterium. But then to measure the forces, what we thought is like, oh, instead of actually using a bit, let's use something that's deformable. Mm -hmm. So we use a droplet. So why? Why does it need to be deformable? Because in order to measure forces, actually, you need to have a, a, a need to be able to. It's like having a spring to measure force. Actually, with your balance at home, actually. What it is, uh, to measure the weight, you have a spring that has been calibrated, the, the spring constant, like mm -hmm. the, how strong it is, the spring has been calibrated, mm -hmm. and a particular force deformed by a particular amount. So that's equivalent. The droplet is equivalent to a spring, but, but that is calibrated so that any deformation in all directions can give you what is the force in that direction. It's like having a spring, but a 3D spring, to put it this way. So what is the droplet, exactly? Hmm? You know, what is it? Oh, it's oil. Oil. Yeah. So the, the droplets that they use in the Curie Institute to do this were droplets made of, you're not going to believe this, but actually we were going to, the, the students that were doing these experiments actually were going to the supermarket and getting Just like vegetable oil. <laughs> <laughs> like that's it. It's that's a, because because it's an inert system. Uh, yeah. So they were doing it in, in, in cell extract. They were not doing it in the real biology, in the, with cells and things like this that can that could be affected by that. Mm -hmm. So, and they showed actually that these droplets also, as they were doing the bits, they break the symmetry and they move with these comets as well. But now the droplets would deform. And at that moment I was a theorist and I was just looking, uh, doing the theory to understand how a particular deformation was giving us the forces. Mm -hmm. And also the, all the propulsion mechani mechanism, and we were doing the theory for that. And then when I was at Harvard as a postdoc and I was thinking about methods to measure forces in the embryo, I thought, hmm, Maybe we should take this droplet thing, make it biocompatible so that we can put it inside an embryo and use it inside an embryo and try to look at the deformations of the droplets also inside the embryo. 
And so how did you make it biocompatible? So the idea is, is, is to use oils actually that are not, um, that the cells cannot really interact to. And for that actually, there are people that have done that before, uh, in particular in bioengineering. There are oils that are used in medical treatments. Like for instance, uh, there are oils that are used as blood substitutes. And they're used as blood substitutes because they're extraordinarily inert and biocompatible. They're FDA approved, blah, blah, all these things, right? Actually, don't interact at all with biological systems. And, and these are fluorocarbon oils. I mean, so instead of having, so in, this, these oils, these fluorocarbon oils, do not interact with hydrocarbons. So in other words, like vegetable oils or like mm -hmm. the membranes of the cells, and they don't interact with that. But, the, but they are different uh, material than water. So they, it doesn't merge with water, it's an oil, mm -hmm. but it doesn't merge neither with plasma membranes. And so we decided to use those oils. And then we, it's a little bit annoying because the chemistry of lower carbon oils is very complex because as they do not interact with almost anything, well, when you have to do chemistry of these things, you need to make them interact with something. So then it's, it's, it becomes more complicated to do the chemistry of this. But at the same time, it's very, very compatible. Mm -hmm. So this is why we, we needed to choose that and then actually develop all the coatings of these so that to control how cells interact with the droplets. And that developing that system of like all controlling all the cell droplet interactions, making it quantitative and this kind of thing. This is this took this at that this at the, it took me like about four years. Wow. <laughs> uh, at that moment actually being I was a postdoc at that moment, actually studying as a postdoc uh, at Harvard. And then actually when I developed my group, I wanted to not only measure the forces but be able to apply forces. And 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 to be honest, actually, I had had the idea of like using ferrofluids for a long time. It's just that we just didn't have time actually to develop everything. You need to go step by step. And and then I thought we had the chance actually to to do it when we started my group. And also it was because I was lucky enough that in my group actually we had I had uh, people from different dis disciplines that were very good and that could actually develop this technique alone. I couldn't have been able to do that. No, absolutely no chance. Actually, like this, I mean, there were people actually that were like a a postdoc actor with a, a strong expertise in technique development, and he was a mastermind of these things. Like he, <laughs> he, he, it's like a MacGyver, right? Of this. <laughs> so, so he was the guy who actually like really built all the actuators and all these things. Actually, so feral fluid. You uh, mentioned how that's a part of these droplets. So, what is, how is that being used to? help you test these cell mechanical properties. Right, so so normal droplets actually they are not magnetic in any sense. They are passive in the sense that they respond to the forces that the cells are doing and we can measure the forces, but we cannot externally actuate them and, and apply forces to cells, right? And Or like measure the mechanical properties of the tissues surrounding these droplets. We cannot do that. So the idea is like, so how do you, at a distance, uh, actuate an object? You need to use fields, either use light, or you use magnetic fields or electric fields. Mm. And it turns out actually that uh, electric fields affect biological systems quite a lot. <laughs> so it was not an option. <laughs> so, and it turns out the light is very annoying because, uh, <laughs> because if you go into a biological system that it's thick, uh, you cannot really control the, the density changes. So you cannot really control the light mm. properly. So it was not really quantitative. So that left us with magnetic uh, and, and well, turning, I mean, ferrofluids exist for a very long time. So, and we know the 
physics of a ferrofluid. fluid. So we decided to use these ferrofluids, make them biocompatible first, because otherwise, if you just take the ferrofluid that you get in Amazon and you put it in an embryo, the embryo is not going to be happy. Well, you said that you get on Amazon? You can just buy a ferrofluid? Absolutely, yeah. And so it's, it's just a metallic fluid, right? So it's, it's an iron fluid? So a ferrofluid is nothing else than a, a fluid, whatever. Uh, they're water-based ferrofluids. They're oil-based ferrofluids. Mm -hmm. So it's a fluid. And you actually have magnetic particles that are about, this, mm -hmm. about like 10 nanometers. There are different types, okay, with different sizes of the nanoparticles. But essentially, there are nanoparticles of 10 nanometers there that, as a whole, they are so small that when you dilute them in the fluid, if they stay in this fluid, they behave like a, like now a magnetic fluid. Wow. And actually, I'm sure that if you have not seen, actually, I, I urge you to go out to the YouTube and put ferrofluid and see what <laughs> happens, actually, when you apply magnetic fields. This is really cool. I feel like Magneto really, really cool. do some damage with that. <laughs> it's really cool. Like, you have these fluids that make spikes. Ooh. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's very, very cool. And so what we decided to do was like take these, make droplets that are very small, about the size of a cell, a little bit bigger than a cell, and then apply magnetic fields to these droplets to deform the droplets, to control their shapes. Because then if we deform the droplet, we can apply forces on the surrounding cells. And and if you if you really make it very carefully so that you have a ferrofluid that you have properly calibrated and you have carefully uh, studied, then you can actually apply forces that you control. So it's almost like a, like a reverse scale. So it's like you described this, these oil droplets being like a spring or a scale, yeah. you're kind of doing the opposite. You're using that scale to apply the force exactly. and measure the force back. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You actually, well, to be honest, it's like putting a, to, some people actually say that it's like, that what we're trying to do is like making artificial mechanical cells that are controlled. So you make a droplet that is like the size of a cell, then now you can actually make it apply forces to the other cells around and measure the mechanics around, right? And it's a little bit like that, but um, but obviously a droplet is not like a cell, so so it has some limitations. But at the end of the day, it's really the ferrofluid droplets were like simply the way to use the droplets that we had previously done to measure forces and be able to use external fields to act to actuate them and apply forces to cells at will inside a developing embryo, inside a developing organ, hmm. uh, in any 3D structure that you want. Actually, that works not only for embryos, and it works for, for inert materials as well, actually. So some people have already shown interest to use it for soft matter physics, which is, has nothing to do with, with uh, biology, but obviously the techniques also work in those systems. Hmm. How do you use the magnetic droplet specifically? You know, How do you apply it? The key point is that we have built um, uh, a magnetic actuator, so we have put built magnets on the scope that we can actually uh, make it make them closer to the sample, to the the embryo or to the tissue. And by changing the distance of these magnets to the tissue, we are applying different amount of magnetic field. And then you are deforming more or less the droplet depending on the amount of magnetic field that you are applying. So by controlling this magnetic field, we can actually just apply the forces on the cells. So, yeah. So how does using this technique, either even injecting the ferrofluid droplet or applying this magnetic field, potentially impact the measurements even that you're making? So that's a very good point. So um, so the way we do it is we, what we do is we put the droplets with the experiment and then we look if anything has changed in terms of like, in particular because we're studying morphogenesis, we look at if, if we have altered the morphology of the system, mm -hmm. maybe that, and in general, no. To be, to be honest, actually, this this is a typical this is the typical problem in measurement. 
And this is not a problem associated to this measurement. Mm -hmm. This is a problem of measurement of any measurement in physics or in biology. Kind of those cool philosophical problems of like, <clears throat> you can't test if your technique affects the measurement because your technique is the only way to even do the measurement. <laughs> right. Yeah. So actually, this discusses the limiting cases in quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. That's the limiting case. It's like the moment that you perform an experiment, and but when you perform the measurement, so you cannot measure the the all the states. You, when you measure, you measure one with a certain probability. Mm -hmm. So you can measure, and repeating the measurement many times, you can actually get to understand that there were different states mm -hmm. with different probabilities. Measurement, actually, what it means, measurement? What does it mean? It means interacting mm -hmm. with the system. You're trying to get something out of the system, so you, and you're doing something to the system. So by definition, when you do something, or you try to get something out of the system, you're interacting with the system. So, you know, we know that you look at the embryo, and so, you know, what model system do you look at embryos in? So, so in my lab, we use, uh, we use zebrafish. There's a, a, a fish that you can get at the pet store, if you want. I mean, not- Pet store? Oh. Uh, no, Amazon not, anymore? <laughs> no. <laughs> actually, I'm not sure. I've never looked for it. <laughs> Maybe you can get it on Amazon, actually. <laughs> so zebrafish are very nice because, um, well, it really depends. Uh, it really depends on what you want to study. What is the question that you want to study? What is the system that you use? And actually, who was that? It was Ernst Haeckel, like one of the very well-known developmental biologists, actually, that said there is a different organism for each question that you are asked. Our technique is based on, we need to see these droplets. We need to see them. So it's an optical based technique in the sense that you need to see the formation of your droplets. So you rely on light coming out of the sample. So, it's better to have systems that you can see through. So mouse or human tissues are very opaque to light. That's why you don't see through <laughs> a human, right? But fish, they are fish, actually they are quite transparent. And actually marine organisms tend to be quite transparent, like jellyfish, like things like this. They tend to be quite transparent. But for us it's great because as they are more transparent, that means actually we can see through them better. Uh, we can actually shine a laser on it and actually see through the system, see, like how the cells are moving in three dimensions throughout the entire organ. So that's the first thing. Second, so it's advantages because you can see through. It's advantages because you can actually, because it develops very fast. Mm. So if you, so mouse development, if you're trying to see an eye forming in, during, in mouse development, it takes days. In zebrafish, it takes about five hours, like the initial stage of eye formation. So you can actually do it in the lab like leave it overnight and next morning you have the entire imaging of the eye, right? <laughs> in 3D, all the cells. So that's great. And the last thing why the refuse is very good is because you can micromanipulate very easily. So in mouse, for instance, if you want to micromanipulate, you need to take the, first you need to take the embryo out of the mother. That means that you need to kill the mother and the embryo does not survive for many, many hours actually outside the uterus. So, so you need to take it out and, and then the embryo is going to last for like 24 hours or something, a little bit more. And it's a disturbed system. So and, it, and you have disturbed the system, right? And there's another thing, you have genetics. Mm -hmm. You have transgenics and mutants, mm -hmm. whereas genetics is, is much more developed in mouse, for instance, but then you cannot see through the tissues. Mm -hmm. So if you, you need to find an opt, a kind of an optimal system to answer your question, and this is why we chose fish in, in my lab. So you have this perfect system where you have these little transparent zebrafish and you're, you're looking at their embryos over and watching them develop. So what are, you, what are you looking at during that development? What things are interesting you in their huh. embryonic development? So one of the, so we're looking at different things. So we're starting now um, 
how a vertebrate, which a zebrafish is a vertebrate like us, so how do they actually go from the initial egg, which is a spherical shape, to uh, having an axis, like a head-to-tail axis, like we have. So the, the developmental mechanisms that we use as humans or mouse, actually, to build that axis are very similar. Mm. Very similar than fish. So instead of, obviously, we cannot study that in humans. So we could do mouse, but then we cannot see the things. We cannot use these techniques that we've developed to measure the forces. Or, or like, we can, but very limited. So, so then we use fish as a proxy to learn about how it happens in the human because we know that the molecular events that happen are very similar between human or mouse, and, and they're similar across the vertebrates. So then actually we use fish to do that, to study how you go from the initial embryo to an elongated structure that defines a body axis in a vertebrate like, like the one we have. Another project that we have now in the lab is we're studying, um, we're studying eye formation, how you build an eye, because, and I like a lot the eye because it's, I mean, the, mor the morphology is like, outstanding and it relates very much to function. Right, yeah. So this is why actually we're very interested in the eye. And also we're studying tumor development. Tumor development. Because uh, tumors, as you all know, actually have been studied from a molecular perspective a lot. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, actually, I'm sure that you know that tumors actually change physical properties of the tissue substantially. I mean, the whole idea is just like, like, like an, a sped up growth you, rate, essentially. Exa right. Exactly. Yeah. So you sped up a growth rate, but you actually have a, a different, I mean, actually one way to detect it is by just palpating. Mm -hmm. You just look at the mechanics mm -hmm. of like the tissue, it has changed. So the question is, so why, but the problem is that we didn't have techniques to study the physics or the mechanics of tumor development in, in the real system or even actually in three-dimensional environments of cells. So what we're doing is we're trying to, we're putting these probes actually that we've developed to see actually what changes from a normal cells when they turn malignant in terms of the physical environment. What is that that is allowing the cells to proliferate so much? What is that that uh, they change to does it turn actually more fluid and it can invade more? Uh, what, what is happening there? Or what are the forces? Do they turn actually super strong, these things? Or like what is happening? And so, so we, we still don't know. We are studying this. Uh, but are you are you still using this micro droplet technique yeah. to study these? Yeah, That's we use we use the different micro droplet techniques to study. We're trying to map inside these tumors how how are the forces and the material properties and all this change to during during the growth of the tumor. Have you ha, have you gained any insights about humans yet? The thing that we've learned, I would say, uh, I would say that is the most important thing because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what organism really is, whether it's a human or not is about the physical mechanisms of how you shape organs, tissues. So this is because I believe that what we're going to find in mouse, sorry, what we're going to find in mouse or in other organisms is going to be at the physical level, not how it's molecularly controlled, mm -hmm. but at the physical level, the mechanisms are going to be very similar across mm -hmm. species. And therefore, by learning in zebrafish, you learn about how we do it. Mm -hmm. So earlier you were mentioning you know, how science and especially the questions that you're approaching take years and years and years to think about. So you know, one of my favorite questions is if you had infinite resources and let's just say infinite time, mm -hmm. what would you want to tackle? <laughs> it's your dream study. What is your dream study? Hmm. There's so <laughs> many interesting questions that it's difficult to... Um, what is my dream study? So one of the things that I'm very interested, but I, I think it's uh, well. First of all, the questions that we're studying, I think it's going to take a, either my lifetime 
or way more to really understand how the things work. These are very fundamental and, and complex questions. So one thing that I would like to have is like a kind of a theory in biology like we have in physics, mm -hmm. like, like that kind of level mm -hmm. of theory, like a theory or abstract um, theories. Actually, in biology, there is one, there is evolution. Uh, that is not a theory understood as a theory mm -hmm. that there's a lot of experimental data backing it up. Mm -hmm. It's not actually, I actually think that people actually have a total misconception of what theory means. It's two different kinds and of theory, yeah. Like, uh, like theory for the normal population means something that is totally different than theory for a physicist or theory for a scientist in general. Mm -hmm. So, and, and actually that misconception has led to many problems, let's put it this way. <laughs> but, um, but I would like to see, uh, probably I what I would like to understand is the difference between uh, living matter and inert matter. Mm. What beautiful. is the yeah. and uh, because and, and the reason is because actually when you go back historically at the definition of biology, so it, 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 by the way there was no distinction between physics and biology back in the in the 18th century. What was the difference? And science at the moment, the scientific enterprise was stuck. And Lamarck actually was the one who said like, okay, so it seems that we are a little bit stuck here. I mean, I'm probably not in this world. <laughs> I'm sure not in this world, <laughs> but uh, maybe in French, no. But, uh, but, no, but, but he said, uh, essentially the concept was that we don't understand it, but living systems are interesting per se on their own. So let's not try to focus on the question of what is the difference between living and inner matter, but let's focus on what are the properties of these living systems. Mm -hmm. And then biology started as a field. Mm -hmm. like, we're just going to study these living systems, yeah. independent of what is the difference between living. But actually, what he brought also is, at some point, we cannot forget that at some point, we need to come back and see what is the difference. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that we are now at a moment that we can, that we know enough, we have enough tools that we actually can go back to really answering the question. And uh, we'll see if we can do it. Yeah. RadioBio is supported by the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group and the Graduate Division at the University of California, Merced. For more information, you can visit our website at radiobio.net or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.